Almighty God and Father, we worship you this morning. We lift our voices to you this morning and joining with the heavenly chorus that cries out to you, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Oh God, we cry out to you as those in need, in need of you to speak to weary souls, to weary hearts, to weary minds, to weary bodies. Lord, to speak your words of life and of grace and of mercy and of truth. How we thank you that you have not left us in silence, but that you have spoken. And Lord, we come with faith, however little or small that faith may be, we come with faith that you are here, gathered with us by your spirit, spread across the city and region, and that you will speak by your grace. So speak now, we pray. Convict our hearts, encourage them. Draw us into your life. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. For the last couple of weeks, we have been with Peter on the mountaintop, surveying the wondrous realities of the Christian life and the Christian's position. We have a living hope, and our future is assured. We are shielded by the power of God and able to be full of joy in the midst of trials and circumstances that are far from ideal. And these are life-altering truths, truths that are the truest truths of the lives of those who are in Christ by faith. They are more central to us than, uh, for our identity than is our family, our social position, our prospects for future success or failure, our relational wealth or poverty, and of course, our present circumstances. And Peter is driving these truths home to his readers because he wants them to stand firm in the true grace of God. He longs for them to endure. They need the exhortation to endurance because the life that they are living is not an easy life. They are facing threats and challenges from their neighbors and from local leaders. They're being slandered. Some of them are being beaten. They're seen as outsiders. So Peter, as we saw a few weeks ago, rightly calls them exiles. They do not belong. And we can imagine how easy it is for them in such circumstances to lose heart. And while our circumstances are not identical to theirs, we can appreciate the challenge of the call to endure in the Christian life. Especially in the face of difficulties, perhaps especially in the face of the ongoing realities of this pandemic and of our separation from one another, among many other things. We too need the encouragement to endure to press on, to not lose heart. It's with that purpose in mind that Peter, as we've seen over the last two messages, has expounded the privileges of the Christian in terms of both a living hope and a rejoicing hope. He wants his readers to see that, that, that despite their present circumstances and despite their status as exiles, they are privileged, so deeply privileged as the people of God. And that intention of Peter's continues now as we turn to verses 10 through 12 in chapter 1, where we observe Peter from this great height up on the mountaintop, looking far back at what I am calling today an ancient hope. This hope, this salvation was foretold by the prophets, and it has now been told, declared, and reported to them. Their privilege 
which is our privilege as well, is getting to know this ancient hope. This is something of the sentiment that is communicated by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 11, when he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We who live on this side of the gospel events, we are privileged above even the prophets of old, including John the Baptist, because we get to know and to experience this ancient hope, this salvation, on this side of its occurrence, in the full light of day. That is our privilege, Peter says. May we never forget it. If knowing this ancient hope doesn't strike us as a great privilege, and I grant that for many it may not, then I would suggest to you that we have most likely not seen and not grasped, or perhaps we may have just generally forgotten just what an incredible thing this, the salvation of humankind actually is. And my goal with our time today is to take up this ancient hope and to help us see again the reality of our privilege in knowing and understanding this salvation that the prophets foretold. First, I'd like for us to consider that this is, in fact, an ancient hope. And then second, just to marvel briefly at the fact that it has been told to us. And then thirdly, I'd like to come back and examine what exactly has been told. What is it that is the Christian gospel? In what does it consist? So first, an ancient hope. In verse 10, Peter tells his readers concerning this salvation, that's how he begins, that the prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They did this, verse 11, through the spirit of Christ. And they longed, Peter says, to know. So they searched intently and with the greatest care. They longed to know the person or the time or the circumstances about which they were prophesying. But it was revealed to them in verse 12, Peter says, that they were not serving themselves, but rather later generations. Us, Peter says. They were prophesying about things that were yet to come. Things that have now, in fact, happened, that have now been told, as verse 12 declares, to Peter's readers by those who preached the gospel to them by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The general point is this, that this salvation in which Peter's readers and all Christians now participate was not something new, not some kind of plan B or plan C from the God of heaven and earth who did not know what to do about the problem of sin. No, this great salvation, this salvation that has captivated the greatest minds and imaginations throughout human history, this salvation that has been the muse for the greatest music and poetry and literature throughout human history, this salvation that has been the inspiration for the greatest acts of kindness and love and justice throughout human history, this salvation was foretold by the prophets, those who spoke and wrote, Peter says, by the Spirit of Christ throughout history, throughout his history with his people. More than that, we might say that this salvation was settled, decreed in the will of the triune God long before time began. Several verses later in verse 20, Peter will proclaim that Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our redemption, quote, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. 
what God foreknew, the prophets foretold, and God accomplished. The effect of this should be significant and real in our lives. I remember back to being a child, we had a 1980 Ford van that was white with blue stripes down the side, had two benches in the back and then a large cargo section. It was a full van, not a minivan. And I remember many trips with my family in that van as a young child. And this was before the days that seatbelt enforcement was seen as kind of common sense, I guess. So we would play around in the back of the van while my dad was driving. And as it got to be late at night, we would crawl under the seats on the floor of the van and fall asleep. And I can remember that feeling of being okay and of being secure and safe because my dad was at the wheel of the van. There was a sense of reassurance and comfort with that experience. And in many ways, what Peter is telling us here is that this that God foreknew, that the prophets foretold, that God accomplished, should give us that kind of reassurance and comfort. Sure, we know if we stick with the, the illustration that the van may not always meet, reach our destination in the way or shape that we would like it to, but the reality is, is that God is on the throne, and that's what this communicates to us, this passage in 1 Peter, and that we can have a sense of resting reassurance in his sovereign hand. This is the testimony of the scriptures of what we call our Old Testament, but what in the New Testament was referred to simply as the scriptures, that they speak forth of Christ, the one who was to come. Paul declares in Romans 1 verse 2, the gospel of God, which is all about Christ, was promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. And do you remember the education that Jesus gave to those two enviable disciples on the Emmaus Road? We read in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They received a master class in the testimony of the scriptures of the Old Testament to Christ. All that God had promised, all that God had intended was foretold through the Old Testament and now fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus, which is the climax of the story that begins within the beginning. It is the astonishing fact of prophecy to which Peter is now bearing witness to his readers. By the Spirit of Christ, the Old Testament writers, the prophets told of Christ. The greatest of these prophets, of course, was Moses. And this foretelling begins early on in the book of Genesis in verse 15 of chapter 3 when God says to the serpent he that is the offspring of the woman will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel this was a proclamation of Christ of his struggle and his triumph over the powers of evil and this proclamation continues throughout the old testament reaching its zenith no doubt in the prophet Isaiah Peter will quote from the fourth servant song of Isaiah at the end of chapter two in his letter. So we know that this book is resonating in his mind as he writes. And many of Isaiah's words are of course memorialized for us by Handel's Messiah from which we heard earlier in the service. It is perhaps no surprise that Handel's great work takes more of its lyrics from this prophet's book than from any other biblical work. Isaiah is a prophetic book infused with the proclamation of Christ. The prophet's words, and not just Isaiah's, but all the prophets, are like the first rays of the sun breaking at dawn, 
which at this time of year break through our kitchen window in our home. They're not yet that strong. They haven't yet brought the full warmth of the sun in in its radiance, but they do indeed come from the sun itself. And once the great light dawns, and this great light has in fact dawned in the incarnation of the Son of God, we can look back and see with such clarity just how much Christ was the subject of the Old Testament. Augustine famously remarked, the new is in the old concealed or latent. The old is in the new revealed. The late 19th, early 20th century theologian B.B. Warfield said this, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity, he goes on, is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God and I might add of his mighty works, is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. So in the church, we reject any notion of Marcionism. Marcion, the second century heretic, concluded that the God who was revealed in Jesus Christ was different from the God revealed in the Old Testament, so he cut off the Old Testament and other chunks of of the scriptural witness. But that we will not do. We must retain the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures and insist upon the continuity between the God revealed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is one and the same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, gracious, merciful, truthful, loving, and just. And as a result, but this is actually a different sermon, we should not neglect the Old Testament in our reading, our discussions, our Christian lives, our preaching, and so on. And thanks be to God that my predecessor here at Park Street Church knew the value, perhaps more than most, of the Old Testament and held that up to this body, a tradition and a practice that I hope to continue. This is an ancient hope. But second, let's move to the need to marvel for just a moment at the fact that this is an ancient hope foretold by the prophets that has now been declared and reported to us. This is the astonishing reality that Peter wants his readers to understand and to see. What a privileged position it is that we hold. Having inquired, the prophets were were told, Peter says, that they were not serving themselves, but rather that they were serving you in these things. He says this in verse 12, that have now been told to you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. They were serving you. What was foretold has now come to pass and is now being declared. We get to hear about it. We get to experience it. We get to know it. What a tremendous privilege. My older kids' school, which is Boston Trinity Academy, has initiated a capital campaign to fund significant improvements to their facilities, an initiative which is, in a sense, going to enable the school to better match in its facilities the wonderful education that it provides to our children. And for the existing juniors and seniors at BTA, this is news about the future that they only get to glimpse from afar, to see in pictures and drawings and depictions of architects. But these things are pointing to a future reality, a reality that unfortunately they as students will not get to experience in full. They won't have, for example, the joy of being able to go to gym class in their school. But for the younger students, 
my younger kids. This plan will become their experience and their reality. The drawings will become bricks and mortar and buildings and a gym and learning and new kinds of opportunities. How much better of a position it is for them than for the older students. And in some ways, this is like the prophet's position. They see the plans. They get the outline. They catch a glimpse. The spirit of Christ predicts in them the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. But we, we get to experience the fullness of these things. We get to walk in and enjoy them, unlock them, dive into them, revel in them. That is our great privilege as the people of God after the time of Jesus. But thirdly, what are in fact these things that have been reported to us? What, what is the nature of this gospel to which the prophets bore witness? And here I, I want to ask you to come along with me on, on a bit of recounting of this story in a bit more detail. Because it is so important that we understand this. What Peter says in verse 12 was, was spoken to you by those who proclaimed or preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Because this is the heart of Christianity. It is not a philosophy. It is not primarily a teaching. It is not a system that is, that is designed to make us morally upright. No, this gospel is about a grace that was to come to us, to be ours. That's what the prophets have spoken about, Peter says in verse 10. This is all about a gift from God to us. It's an unmerited favor. We did not find God. The heart of Christianity, the heart of the prophet's words, the heart of the gospel is that God comes to us. God enters, God redeems, God forgives, God heals, God renews. God is the actor and God is the initiator. God is the revealer. And we are the recipients and the beneficiaries of this great revelation. It is that simple. And that's good news if you're listening to this ancient hope declared by the prophets and drawn in, but, sunderly, but drawn into it, but sun, suddenly wondering if you are worthy, if you qualify, perhaps worried that you're too worldly for such a gift as this, that you've blown it with the things that you've done and the things that you've said. And indeed, you are, as am I, as are all of us. But this gift, this grace is given to us. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus, our great physician, longs to come to us in the present day and do a work of healing and restoration and renewal in our souls and in our lives. That brings true hope, true peace, true joy. What Peter's readers have experienced, this new birth into a living hope, this was according to God's great mercy, verse 3. And here in verse 10, it is spoken of as grace. Sheer gift. But again, this grace was not a system of teaching or of thinking. No, in fact, the reality in verse 12 is that the preaching of the gospel was about certain things or events. The things that have now been told to you, Peter says. The gospel is reporting on events that have happened in history and inviting us into the reality of the ongoing effect of those things in the present day. It is these things that have changed what is possible, that have changed our world, that have changed our lives. Well, what are these things? They're about Christ, of course. This person who has captivated history ever since he walked upon this earth. 
This is the eternal son of God who laid aside his former glory to take up residence among us in human flesh. This is the baby in the, in the manger, the innocent and vulnerable one through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made. The one confounded, who confounded the scholars at age 12 in the temple despite having never been formally trained and not being a Pharisee himself. At around age 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that spoke through the prophets, that Spirit dwelt and descended upon this Christ, this Jesus. And he began a public ministry that drew great crowds to him from all different walks of life to come and see. We've never seen someone teach with authority like this. We've never seen someone heal people like this. And remember what happened on that boat with his disciples when Jesus calmed the storm. They were afraid in the presence of one so great, so different, so powerful. They said, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But it doesn't stop there. These things that are at the heart of the gospel declaration are clarified much more by the content of what was revealed to the prophets. If we see back in verse 11, what was revealed to them was the sufferings of Christ. For this glorious and great one, the eternal son of God, came into the world not merely to do acts of power, not merely to teach with great authority, but he came to suffer. That's what the prophets bore witness to. He came to lay down his life on a Roman cross. This was not what his closest followers expected or wanted when Jesus revealed that this was his purpose in coming. For the first time, Peter rebuked him. But Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you have on your mind not the things of God, but the things of man. This is what he came for. It was to take up his cross. This is why he came. He came to love to love with a kind of love that the world had never experienced before. This is what was foreknown from the foundations of the world. This is what the prophets foretold. And this is what Jesus came and accomplished. The sinless one to suffer and to die for sinners like us. To take up the cross for our sake. The Lamb of God who would lay down his life for the sins of the world. This is what is at the declaration of these things that Peter says are now being reported to you by those who proclaim the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. This death is at its heart. This death was monumental. It was the moment of defeating sin and evil and death itself. And it becomes the basis of our forgiveness, of our healing, of our being made whole, of our peace. It is the propitiation, the deflection, the satisfaction of the wrath of God that we were rightly the objects of in our sin. This is the height of the love of God and the display of the justice of God, all manifest for us in the death of the Son of God. But I continue, these sufferings were not the only part of the things reported. For as Peter declares at the end of verse 11, the Spirit of Christ revealed to the prophets not just the sufferings of the Christ, but the glories that would follow. Do you know those glories? We read from the third servant song in the prophet Isaiah when that servant who is subjected to great suffering says, I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Words in Isaiah 50 that get reverberated in Romans 8 that were sung for us earlier. The grave could not hold this one. He would lay down his life only, as he said, to take it up again. He would not and he could not remain in the tomb. Christ is the victor, the vindicated, the restored, the raised, and the resurrected. And the, the prophets spoke of these things. 
It was not for them that they spoke, but for us. They spoke of these things. And the women found these things to be true when they came to the tomb and found it empty. His body was not there. He had been raised three days later. And for 40 days, he spent time walking among, teaching, caring for, providing breakfast for his disciples, eating and drinking with them. And then Jesus ascends into the heavenly realm before their very eyes, taking his place as now the resurrected son of God, as the glorified human being who is also divine, as the ruler of the universe at the father's right hand. These are the things declared to us now in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But they don't stop here. Follow me again. For 10 days later, after his ascension, Jesus and the father send forth from the heavens the promised spirit that would come upon these poor fishermen, uneducated and ordinary men. And transform their lives into the powerful proclaimers of the gospel that they became. Through whose preaching many were converted. Many came to, to know the life of this Jesus in their own lives. And the spirit that transformed them began to transform the community of those who had responded to their message. And that same spirit continues now in the present day to transform your life and my life and the life of the church for the glory of Christ. The spirit had come. But there is more. Verse 13, which sneaks just a bit ahead from where we were, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought, to, be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This present darkness that we experience, these present trials that we are walking through, these present circumstances that we wish were different, they will not be our, our, our future. They will not last forever. These are not the end, for we wait for the consummation of what has begun. We wait for the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. We wait to receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In the words of verse 4, kept in heaven for us, we wait for glory. For what these prophets reveal about the sufferings of the Messiah and the future and the, the subsequent glories of the Messiah, that pattern of suffering followed by glory, that pattern was to be our pattern. This is a key theme in the letter of 1 Peter, that our present is like Christ's past and our future will be like Christ's present in glory. What an encouragement that would be to these early Christians, exiles in their culture, persecuted, slandered, and beaten, that they were on the inside of the greatest news that had ever been known, of the greatest events that had ever been accomplished, and of the greatest hope that could ever be proclaimed. This was their hope. They were the people of God. How encouraging this must be. These things are not yet a full reality. But what confidence this inspires as the gospel is proclaimed, which includes the reality that this king that has raised, been raised from the dead will return, not as the babe in the manger, vulnerable and meek, but as the merciful and glorious and rightful judge of the world, king and ruler. And this is as sure and as certain as anything that we can touch that we experience in our lives today. That is at the heart of the proclamation of the gospel. Do we know this salvation? Are we encouraged by what God foreknew, what the prophets foretold, and what has now been declared unto us? Not a teaching, not a philosophy, but a person, 
not a person who's a figment of our imagination, but a person who entered into space and time and history, who suffered and who was raised and who has ascended to glory at the Father's right hand and who will return to make all things new. The last words of our text this morning. Peter says this comment that even the angels long to look into such things. Even the angels, these dignified beings that do the bidding of the God of creation. These beings that stood at the side, that, that stood by and heard the voice say, let there be light and there was light. These angels, one of whom brought the news to Mary that she would conceive and give birth to a son. These angels who attended the tomb when Jesus had been raised and bore witness for the first time on this earth to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What Peter says is that even these dignified beings, they long to look into such things as the salvation of humankind that is declared to you plainly and clearly in the gospel. That has been declared beforehand by the prophets. That was foreknown by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from all eternity. These angels, as they're running around doing the bidding of this great God, they long, they're whispering among one another, they're eager, they're peering in to see what is this great thing that God has done? What is this glorious salvation? Where God has stepped into the world that went amok. We saw it, we were there, one of our own was part of this. And yet here, God has entered in. God has done a great thing. God has brought about a new kind of possibility. That's what the angels were talking about. They longed to look into these things. Oh, I, I want to finish just by asking you, do you long to see these things? Do you know that it is these things that are the, 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 the source of your song? in the morning. It is these things, the Christ who is crucified and been raised and ascended and who is returning, it is these things that give us a living hope, that bring about a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. These things that are ancient things, but now accomplished things, anticipated things, do these bring us great joy. Do these fill us with the warmth of the reality that God is on the throne? I pray that they will do so. Let me pray. Oh God, even in these days, which are not what any of us would want and which are marked by all kinds of challenges. How I pray that you would again grant us the grace to peer into these things that you have made known and made clear to us through your gospel. That Christ crucified and Christ raised and Christ returning would be our song. Oh Lord, I pray for the church I pray for Park Street Church. I pray for the church in Boston. I pray for the church in this nation. I pray for the church around the globe that you might pour out your spirit upon us more and more and grant us, O oh Lord, the joy of your salvation. Grant us to know the great privilege of these things that you have spoken of long ago and accomplished in your son. And Lord, I pray specifically for those 
who are with us this morning, who are asking questions, who are inquiring, who are wondering, what is this Christian message all about that you, Lord, would bring about a sense of understanding in the contemplation of such great things that have been proclaimed to us through your word, through the apostles, through the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would draw in more and more to your life, to your hope, to your joy. Encourage us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.